0: Welcome to the House of God podcast presented by the Collective Choir on Eau Claire Hometown Media. We'll share sermons to help you get to know a different Chippewa Valley Church each week and to keep you up to date with the Collective Choir. I'm Shane Spencer, and here's your host, Zachariah Putney.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the House of God podcast. It's the best House of God podcast there is that I know of. This is episode 18, by the way. This week we have Westridge Church. 3906 Kane Road You can find them at westridgechurch.us They are an Assemblies of God church A little bit Pentecostal We have more than a couple Collective Choir members over there Yeah, Pastor Paul Smith Will be sharing The sermon for them First I'd like to Remind you all of the Remix Contest uh, by the time you're hearing this, it will be underway. We invite you to remix the new Collective Choir song, This Is The Day. You can download the production package at collectivechoir.org. Starting on April 10th, there is a $500 first place cash prize sponsored by Charter Bank. And uh, you have until April 28th, just before midnight, to submit your work. And winners will be announced on May 7th. Looking forward to that. It's a good song. Um, The song will be available for everybody to listen on April 17th on all the major online distributors. So look forward to that. Of course, you've already heard uh, an early version of it. In last week's podcast. If you haven't, go back and listen. It's beautiful. All right, let's get into the sermon. Pastor Paul Smith, Westridge Church, uh, Willingness to Help a Friend is the title of the sermon. Take a listen.
0: Good morning. Welcome and welcome to those who are gathered with us online. If you We'd like to follow along this morning in what we are going to be talking about. We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 17. You can follow along in your Bible or on the Westridge app where everything is there for you in a one-stop shop. We are in a mini-series here in this Gospel talking about willingness. And so what our focus is this week is willingness to help a friend, And so as we contemplate, why is willingness so crucial to being a Christian? Or what does willingness have to do with following Jesus? Because this willingness that we've been talking about in a variety of areas, it is essential. It is necessary to being Christians in that authentic sense and following Jesus in a meaningful way. Now, why willingness is so important is because of the two greatest commandments Jesus said that matter most to him. And they really do summarize what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. There is love God, and then there's love people. And if you and I are going to be good, any good at all with either, we have to increasingly become more familiar with God and more familiar with people. So what does familiarity mean? We've been talking about this, a working definition. It's getting to know someone better so that we become more relaxed more comfortable. We're able to be ourselves around the person, but there's always an innate threat to that. And that is it can turn into contempt. What is contempt? That is where we become too comfortable, too familiar with someone, and we begin to look past them, we begin to listen past them, and we begin to take them for granted. And so, as we contemplate, Christians... Quality Christians, quality followers of Jesus, what are some things that we need to be willing to do if we're going to do it well? We've talked about over the past couple of weeks, we need to be willing to make room for Jesus at work. Because a big portion of our life is work. Some 30 years or so, we're going to be spending 40 hours a week plus at work. And so what it looked like in the Apostle Peter's life is, if we're going to make room for Jesus at work, we're not talking down our co-workers. We're not talking down our boss. We're not talking down our employees. But also, if we're making room for Jesus at work, we have a good exemplary work ethic. We are putting the best possible product on the table because we're doing it for Jesus, and we understand that we're doing it for the God who created us, with our creative abilities, but it doesn't stop there. If we're making room for Jesus at work, then no matter what we do, we have become fishers of people. So through the way we treat people, through the way we talk to and about people, and through the product, the quality of our product, the product of our work, we invite people into a relationship with Jesus. We pray with them. We talk with them. And then last week what we talked about We're also willing to touch the untouchable. Jesus reached out and touched a leper. And so there are physical untouchable people, someone who has had COVID, someone who currently has COVID. Are we willing to touch them? Are we willing to still be connected with them, making sure that they're not just off by themselves somewhere? So the various kinds of physical untouchable situations. But then there's the hygienic untouchable. There's the ideological untouchable, the person who has such radically different beliefs from us, but we're still willing to touch them, to enter into a friendship with them. Or there's the moral untouchables, people who do things with their lives immorally that we would maybe never possibly do, but are they still touchable to us? And now what we're going to look at this week in verses 17 to 26 is, are we willing to help a friend? And how all of these things coalesce together... Back in the late second century, early third century, there was an African Christian author, theologian, and scholar. And he wrote in his generation, his name was Tertullian. And what he said was here's the thing you have to understand about Christianity it never withdraws from society and goes and hides. It always remains immersed in society. It started with the incarnation of Jesus, Him leaving the glory of heaven and coming down and being a part of society. And that is what the church has always done. And so this is what He said to His generation, but it applies to you and me. Do we not dwell beside you, sharing your way of life, your dress, your habits, and the same needs of life? We are not Brahmins or Indian gymnosophists dwelling in woods and exiled from life. So we don't go hide somewhere. We don't pull back away from secular society. We are fully immersed. That is what the Christian church does. We stay beside you in this world, making use of the forum, the provision market, the bath, the booth, the workshop, the inn, the weekly market, and all other places of commerce. We sail with you, fight at your side, till the soil with you, and traffic with you. We likewise join our technical skill to that of others and make our works public property for your use. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says that you and I, as his followers, he no longer calls us servants but friends, we are the salt and the light of the earth. And we cannot do that if we extract ourselves, remove ourselves from society at large. So four things, four considerations this week in terms of willingness to help a friend. The first in verse 17 Obstructions to Friendship, starting in verse 17. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. So Pharisees are coming out of the woodworks. This is the first time that the Pharisees are mentioned, and we'll come back to that in a bit. And then notice what Luke says, And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. So the first thing we need to see or observe is Luke continues with his theme, his pattern of using one day, one town, one village, one person. He's done this multiple times now. And it's not one town, one day, one village instead of others or over and above others. It's saying this was the usual habit of Jesus. This was the usual behavior of Jesus, the usual ministry practice of Jesus, that he would do these things that we're seeing. And now what Luke is doing is setting the stage, a group of guys are about to bring their friend to meet Jesus. They're about to bring their friend to be touched by Jesus. And this person desperately needs a touch from Jesus, but who doesn't? So, what is our first observation, if you're taking notes, and we hope that you are? Jesus' standard of friendship is more complex than the culture's. What does that mean? Well, oftentimes in the culture, who am I friends with? The people who like all the same things I like. The people who do all the things that I like to do best. The people who look like me, talk like me, sound like me. But Jesus' idea of friendship is a whole lot more inclusive and complicated than that. Because it's selfless, where the culture at large oftentimes is selfish. And now what Luke is doing for us is he's setting up two obstacles to this person we're about to be introduced to. Two obstacles that are going to obstruct him potentially from getting to Jesus. Becoming a friend of, a friend to Jesus. The first is the Pharisees. This is the first time they're mentioned. We haven't encountered them through these five chapters of Luke. But then he also mentions in verse 19 the crowds. And crowds have been mentioned at least eight different times throughout this gospel. So who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a theological and political group. Should either of these considerations obstruct a friendship? Should differences of theological perspective obstruct friendship? No, it doesn't seem to have bothered Jesus here. Should different political views obstruct friendship? No, once again, Jesus is inside a first century home in Palestine. And what we know from archaeology, this house would have been about 18 feet from front to back, 18 feet from side to side. And notice all the people who are there. So that means you've got roughly, if they're packed in like sardines, 40 to 50 people shoulder to shoulder in this house. And the Pharisees show up and start surrounding it. And Luke tells us they were coming from every village. They were coming from every town. They were even coming from Jerusalem. So the Pharisees, in terms of their perspective, they were always the most conservative morally in the room. They were always the most conservative politically in the room. So how could that ever possibly be an obstruction from somebody being brought to Jesus? We're going to look at that and see. They were conservative in their truth, but remember this that we talked about last week with the leper. God says that for something to be right, it must be both truth and loving. How do we know what is true? Is it according to the prototype? God created every human being. That means what is true is in his word, the Bible. This is the warranty. This is the manual. And so truth, if we deviate from the intended design, it naturally then is going to convict us and correct us to get us back to what we were intended to do and be. But it is always supposed to be done in a spirit a disposition, a mindset of love. Love God, love people. So the ironic thing about truth is that truth can be done wrong. Truth can be done right if it is done in love. Love God, love people. So now to paint the scene a little bit here so we know what it would have felt like. What would have been the vibe in that house of 40 to 50 people, shoulder to shoulder, I want you to imagine yourself on your work shift, whatever it is you do for a job. It's not that out of the ordinary for your manager to come in during your shift. But now think of the manager just sitting down and watching you for about 30 to 60 minutes. That might result in some discomfort and tension. But notice Luke says these Pharisees were coming from every village, all throughout Galilee, even from Jerusalem. So this isn't just your manager or your foreman. This is the assistant manager. This is the regional manager. This is the owner of the company, but it's also the managers and assistant managers throughout the entire region. If they all start coming in and sitting down and watching you do your job, it is a natural wonderment, am I about to be fired? Is this problematic? And so what is the last thing that happened that was circulating? You see, Jesus, from a certain point of view, he disregarded an aspect of the law. We looked at it last week, Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. He touched an unclean human being. He touched a person who was presently infected with leprosy. And so he apparently disregarded, and so they showed up. Now, a couple questions of application are you and I straining any meaningful relationship right now because we're doing truth wrong? We're speaking truth or we're doing truth with a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a sibling, a coworker, a friend, but we are not mixing Christ like love in with it. Or, more to the point of what we see here with Jesus, is there any person who lives around us? a relative, a family member, a coworker, that the doors in your mind and my mind, our hearts are closed because of how different this person is on the surface, or with a belief, or with an activity, that we could not even entertain the thought of this person becoming one day a close friend. You see, these considerations get us into why Luke is telling a story like this. And then notice what he tags on to the end of this verse. God's power to heal was present. And so in Luke 1, Luke 4, and now here, he does it also in the book of Acts. Luke will interchangeably utilize power of God, spirit of God. What does that mean? God's power is his Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is his power. But notice also what he says, the Spirit was present to heal here and now in this house where Jesus was. That means sometimes God is present to heal, but sometimes he isn't. It means that sometimes it's God's will to do a miracle, but sometimes it isn't. If you're taking notes, if we pray for sick people to be healed, then sometimes they will be. If you and I pray for sick people to be healed, sometimes they will be. And so we have to get back to our four U's that we've been working with. Are you and I unaware that God wants us to pray for sick people? Yet the New Testament is full of that instruction. Are we unsure of whether or not we want to pray for sick people? Well, it's part of the Great Commission, so we need to move towards it. Are we unstable with praying for sick people? That we pray for everything under the sun, expecting a supernatural healing when really sometimes all we need to do is offer a friend a cough drop. It doesn't really warrant praying for them in that moment because there are basic, general, non-harmful sicknesses. Are we unstable? Or do we demonstrate what Jesus did? Notice again that in this text we're going to see Luke as a physician is showing there is no incompatibility between faith and medicine. Faith or science? But now we have to consider the other side of the coin. If we never pray for sick people to be healed, then nobody ever will be. God instructs us to pray for the sick. So let's think about people we know, co-workers, family members. Are we praying with and for them when they get sick physically? And not just, hey, I'm going to be praying for you, but could I take one minute and pray with you right now, right here? Or if their relationships are sick. Someone starts talking about how strained their relationship is with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife. Jesus also died to heal relationships. And so if we pray for relationships to be healed, sometimes they will be. Or also emotional trauma. Emotional trauma from a year like last year that still is carried over into this year, unprecedented isolation and all that junk and the things we're thinking about and caring about and worrying about, when people start to share, I feel like I'm on my last nerve, are we praying with them in the moment? Because when we pray for the sick, sometimes they will get well. And if we're unaware, John 14, verse 12, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done And even greater works. Because Jesus put on skin, flesh and bone, you and I can do all the things that he did. And if you've been a part of Westridge for any period of time, but will he really do it? We have had people in this church healed of cancer, healed of nerve damage, healed of bipolar, and they go to their doctor and they get the confirmation, which is what Jesus told the leper to do in the verses we looked at last week. And so when you and I pray for sick people, sometimes they will get well. That's our first consideration, obstructions to friendship. Our second, verses 18 to 20, friendship overcomes obstructions. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, say there. There. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, and the New Living Translation that we're reading here doesn't give us as good of a rendering as the NIV does. Jesus looks at the man and says, friend. So think about this. This person he's never really met, friend this person who would not have been able to belong to the group of the Pharisees per their rules because he was a paralytic, Jesus says, you have a place with me. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. So, first thing, Luke uses the medical term for paralytic. There was another term, a generalized term. Why is Luke doing this? Because from chapter 4, where he first mentions or quotes Jesus talking about physicians to the present, you and I need to understand there is no war between faith and medicine. I mean, it does exist in people's minds, but not in the mind of Christ. Luke, by profession, was a physician. If you're taking notes, miraculous faith and scientific truth are compatible in Jesus. We don't have to choose one over the other. We can have them both in Christ. And so this person who is a paralytic is dealing with the same things as the leper that we looked at last week together. Here is the reality about communicable diseases, infectious diseases. They never just stay physical, do they? If a person is over-isolated, what happens, what does their physical sickness branch out into? Psychological sickness. Emotional sickness, social sickness, and social sickness, if we're isolated too much, begins to lead to a spiritual sickness. And we touched on this last week, but we need to remember it again because this person is going through all of the same type of emotional, social, and spiritual isolation that the leper was. There's a reason that spousal abuse is surging in our culture why child abuse is surging, why substance abuse is surging, why relapses are surging, why depression is surging. If we over-isolate, we are going against the pattern of truth, the warranty, the prototype. You see, God has created you and me for community. The sermon will resume after a testimony from the Collective Choir.
2: I'm here with Scott and Mary Stanton. Hello. And we're asking uh, just some questions about uh, what has the Lord done in their life and how the the Lord has been working his redeeming power and showing himself to them. Mary, do you want to start um, with you? Well, I can.
3: I don't want to start way back at the beginning, but uh, I guess I will just basically say I've been walking with the Lord, seems like, forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that mm-hmm. he's uh, he heard my prayers and saved me. And then when I had my kids, of course, different times during my life, we, I kind of went to the Lord, then I went away from him and back yeah. and forth, you know, back and forth how that is. Yeah. But um I'm just thankful that he's he's faithful.
2: Right. Thankful
3: oh. that he's given me the family he's given me. Right.
2: Know, what, think of one of those times where you felt like you kind of dipped away. What, was that, what did that feel like?
3: Like I was, well, alone and yeah. really couldn't call on him because mm. I wasn't in fellowship with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew he was there, and I could, I could call on him, Yeah, but I just was not in a place where I felt like he would hear me, maybe. Mm.
2: Can you think of how that started to go down that path where you felt distant from him?
3: Just from getting away from my church at that time actually marrying a non-christian mm-hmm. well he was a kind of a Christian mm-hmm. but he wasn't really living it yeah so I would say um, I didn't either because he didn't want you know, mm-hmm. I don't know yeah he yeah. didn't want me to go to church you know yeah. because we had different faiths and different mm-hmm. ways of looking at things and yeah and but I still had my own personal faith. Yeah. I know God never forgot me, and yeah. I know He's been there for me and heard my prayers. But um, I mean, I'm I'm happy for my family. I'm I'm yeah. thankful for the life I've had. But I would just say it's not a good mm-hmm. fit. God never leaves us. I think we leave Him yeah. sometimes, yeah, and we right. go the wrong ro- way, wrong road. But mm-hmm. um, He was always there, even through my childrens, and and I'm so thankful Scott's a Christian. Yeah. Because, and then I think okay was God's purpose not that Scott be blind but that that through his blindness it it made him more dependent on God yeah and kind of drew drew us together that way
2: yeah if it can end in the knowledge of Jesus Mm -hmm. and his love Mm -hmm. I praise God for For whatever he needs to do right yeah that's true to teach us about him
1: thank you to Mary there and to Mike Rambo, the interviewer. You will hear Scott's side of the story next week. We'll get back to the sermon here. West Ridge Church, Pastor Paul Smith.
0: We need to be around people. We need to live around people. We need to do life with people. And we also need to worship with people. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So what do these individuals, this group of younger men do with their friend who was a paralytic They defy all the norms. Authentic friendship is willing to work at overcoming obstacles. What kinds of obstacles? Well, there's no room left in the house. Well, let's go back home and try another day. No, they climb up on the roof of the house and peel back the roof. So what obstacles potentially exist in your relationships right now, mine? Are we willing to... Work at overcoming those obstacles? Or are we shying away from it, saying, It's too hard? I don't need this headache. I don't need this struggle. Or what are people going to say? Do we see the spirit and disposition of these friends? They didn't care what anybody inside of the house thought, they didn't care what they felt. You see, they had genuine love for this friend, and they were going to get him a hearing with Jesus. Because Jesus' reputation is growing. Something else. authentic friendship exercises faith for our friends out of love. Are you and I willing to exercise faith on behalf of our friends? So think about a coworker. Think about a friend, think about a neighbor. Think about someone that you hang out with that does not presently know Jesus. Are we praying that they do know Jesus, that they put their faith and trust in Him? Are we praying that we have the opportunity to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives? If so, it's the type of friendship that Jesus designed friendship to be. A couple of other testing questions. Are you and I able, willing, and do we speak the truth to our friends? Are we able to be truthful? If not, it's not authentic friendship. Are we able to correct our friends? If we're not able to correct our friends, it's not authentic friendship. But now more to the point, can our friends tell us the truth? Down to the last 10%. Can our friends tell us the truth down to the 1%? And are you and I correctable by our friends? These are the marks of authentic friendship. Well, can't I just do this Christian thing on my own? Can it just be me and Jesus because people are a headache? Or can it just be me and my biological family, just us and Jesus until he comes back or until we die, whichever comes first? Can Can't we just do that? And the answer is no. Not because I say so, but we're going to look at this in the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of weeks. It's because Jesus says so. You see, he created us for ever-expanding community. And John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, he was one of the leading voices in an international awakening, a spiritual revival called the First Great Awakening. He addressed this same issue in his generation. And notice what he said. He said, solitary religion is directly opposite to the gospel of Christ. Holy solitaries. Now it's just me and Jesus because I don't need the headache of people solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers you see truth is how did God intend things to be truth is how did God design things to be so how are you and I at loving God the first of the two commandments we can always get to the answer of that question by how are we at loving people And now, most directly to the point, how are we at loving people and befriending people who are different than we are? They look different, they sound different, they believe different things, they have different standards of morality, because notice what Jesus said when he saw this young man, friend. He calls him friend, just like he will eventually do with his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Jesus, a standard of friendship, disregards sameness. And this was increasingly troublesome for this other group of people that Luke is showcasing, the Pharisees. That's not a group or a tribe that we want to be categorized with or belong to. A third consideration, verses 20 to 23, the greatest obstruction to friendship. So picking up where we left off in verse 20, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man or friend, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So what is the greatest obstacle to friendship? The greatest obstacle to friendship is forgiveness. Say forgiveness. Why do friendships fall apart and deteriorate? Well, an offense happens, which happens in every relationship, but one person decides after what they did or what they said, I just can't forget it and I just can't forgive that. But more to the point, they're unwilling to forgive. Why do marriages fall apart? Same reason. One person decides, I just can't forgive this offense. I won't forgive this offense. And if you look at these verses, four times Luke mentions forgiveness. That tells us this is the focal point of these verses we're looking at right now. Verse 20, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24. Forgive, forgiveness. Forgive, forgiveness. It is the focal point. Love never reduces a person to an offense. What does forgiveness look like? It means something was said that was wrong. Something that was done was wrong. We can't forget that or pretend that it didn't happen, but we still accept the person even though something was said or done wrong. We're still willing to touch the person even though something was said or done wrong. Think of the marriage context. Whichever the guilty party is for saying something that was wrong or doing something that was wrong, they start to feel the tension, they start to feel the pressure, and they reach out for a hug, they reach out for a rub of the back, and what does the spouse say? Don't touch me. It's the statement, it's the posture of unloving, of unforgiveness. You see, when you and I are guilty against God, He still accepts us through Christ. When you and I are guilty of offending God with our next sin, he still touches us. These are the postures of love and forgiveness. Now, what we also have to pay attention to here in Luke, as we talked about last week, there's this misconception that is being kicked around our culture that somehow religion is on the decline. Spirituality is on the decline, and it just is not true. In pockets of the United States and in pockets of Europe, it is true. But in the overwhelming global picture, South America, it's shooting through the roof. Asia, through the roof. Africa, through the roof. And still, we have people entering into churches here in our own culture in the West. But there's something else we have to see a mirror image with. Only where you and I live do we think of physiological medicine, separate from theological, separate from the emotional, what we feel. And I want to remind you, look at the numbers, do your own research, get online and look at why is abuse in the aftermath of this last year going through the roof? We have to keep the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, and the physical all together because notice how Jesus heals this man. Jesus healed the person psychologically and sociologically before he did physically. What was the man's obvious need? He couldn't walk. He needed a physical healing. And if you were here last week, the leper, Jesus said, Go to the doctor at the temple so that he gives you a clean bill of health. Why? So that you can start hanging out with your friends again and so that you can go back to church because the leprosy prevented both. And so Jesus gave him his social life back, his spiritual life back. And so here's this guy that gets lowered through a roof. And notice what Jesus says first, you're forgiven. That's what the doctor at the temple is supposed to pronounce. Jesus is basically saying, you get your social life back. You get your spiritual life at church back. And this got the Pharisees riled up. Why were they so opposed? And what was their statement of opposition? Blasphemy. God would never do something like this. Only God was standing right in front of them doing something like this. So if you're taking notes, blasphemy is the common charge when we are unstable in a worldview with faith or science. Are you unstable with your faith and spirituality? How do you know? Well, you're hyper-faith, you're superstitious, and then you demonize people over medicine and science. That's instability. Jesus shows us something different here. But it's not just faith that can be hyper. You can have hyper-medicine and hyper-science, people who demonize people of faith for simply wanting to gather and worship, which the Bible tells us to do. You see, extremism isn't wearing a mask. We saw that last week in Leviticus 13. If someone has leprosy, what are they supposed to do? Cover their mouth. So this is not new to the 21st century. But also, it is not extremism for people of faith to want to gather in person. What is extremism? To be like the Pharisees. Extremism is demonizing the other half of a whole. Jesus is pro-medicine and he's pro-faith. He's the one who gives the wisdom and the way to both and he's the one who heals through us. We don't have the ability to heal and notice what he declares to this young person, this young man. The tense of the verb that he uses here is it's already completed past, present and future. Do you and I understand we're going to take communion together this morning What we are proclaiming when we take communion is this, Jesus Christ on the cross saying it is finished, it means this, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, all of our sins from the past, they're under the blood and they're forgiven. All of our sins from the present, they're under the blood and they are forgiven. And all of the sins from our future, they are under the blood and they are forgiven because when Jesus died on a cross for your sins and my sins, All of our sins were future still. But he still was able to declare, it is finished. So, are we demonizing halves of a whole? And now we're going to personalize this in a way. All the divides that exist in our culture and society, how can forgiven people be unforgiving? That doesn't make sense. How can graced people be ungracious? You and I have received so much mercy from Jesus. How can we not be merciful people? This is what is on display here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Fourth and finally, the expanding friendliness of forgiveness, verses 24 through 26. Luke goes on to say, quoting Jesus, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up. Pick up your mat and go home. He could have said any one of these directives and it would have been fully satisfactory. But Jesus is emphasizing. He gives three action verbs here. Stand up, pick up, and go. So he's making a point. In verse 25, And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Say praise. When you and I see Jesus the most natural response is to praise him. And if we are not compelled to praise him, then we aren't really seeing him, or we're not seeing the real one, I should say. He went home praising God, verse 26, everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. So notice his praise led to the praise of others. And so think about the places that you and I are called to go. Now this phrase, Son of Man, it focuses on Jesus' humanity. Why is Jesus' humanity so important? Why did Jesus become a human being? Well, it wasn't just to be an example of how we should have lived to begin with. It was totally to substitute Himself for us. On that cross, all of your unrighteousness, all of my unrighteousness was placed on Him, the Bible says. But at the same exact time, all of his righteousness has been placed on us. If we have confessed our sins, if we have repented of our sins, if we have professed him to be Lord and Savior, that transaction takes place. So God became a human to forgive and be friends with us. Why did Jesus come to earth? To keep adding to his circle of friends to call us part of God's divine family. So one more time, asking the question, are you and I unstable with truth? Are we making God's truth wrong by failing to mix in Christ-like love? But we also have to flip that. Are we making Christ's love wrong by not mixing in truth? You see, you have to also have truth to guide love. You and I can't just do anything we want to and say, well, it's love, so it makes it okay. No, God's word defines what is right and what is wrong. The Pharisees were critical moralizers closed to others. Are you a critical moralizer? Am I a critical moralizer? What does that even mean? Well, we believe, if we are a critical moralizer, that as long as you have very moral views and as long as you live your life morally, that is a path to heaven. Or if you create moral laws and people obey them, that is a path to heaven. Jesus said, absolutely not. There is one path. There is one path to heaven. It is repentance. It is grace. It is faith. It is belief in Jesus Christ, his death for our death. And so when we look at these Pharisees one more time, they created all these rules. This will make you a better person. So you have a commandment, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So they created laws, don't write on permanent paper or parchment or you're breaking that commandment. Don't make mud on the Sabbath or you're not honoring the Sabbath. Don't touch an unclean person. Yet they were going above and beyond what God's word explicitly said. Every civil law is not spiritual, but every spiritual law is civil. I'm going to say that again. Every civil law is not spiritual, but every spiritual law is civil. What does that mean? What makes something a civil law or a civil right? It's showing the basic courtesy to people who are created equal in God's likeness and image. So why are race relations a civil right? Because what makes someone's skin the color that it is? Genetics, DNA. Who wrote the DNA in that person, God? And so that's why in our culture last month was what? Black History Month, a civil rights issue. This month is Women's Rights or Women's History Month. What makes someone a male or a female? Genetics, the DNA. Well, who wrote that DNA? The God of the universe, the creator of all things. And do you realize, whether it's the color of your hair, or the color of your eyes, or the color of your skin, that you have about 3 billion letters that make up your genetic code. And those 3 billion letters, give or take a few, they appear in 4-letter codes, almost like a cryptograph. And just to put this in perspective, that God intended you to be the person you were born genetically... To put this in perspective, if you wanted to read your entire genetic code, at three of those letters per second, it would only take you 31 years. So God intended to make us who we are, the way that we are. Just let that sink in for a moment. The doctrine of the incarnation is essential to being a Christian. Because if God did not come down in human form to live the life that you and I could not live and to die our death in our place so that we don't have to die the second death, then there is no salvation. There is salvation in no other name other than this name of Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the person. Last thought before we move back into worship and communion. Every healing corrects something back to God's intended design of wholeness, wellness, and truthfulness. Is there something in our body that needs to be healed? Is there something emotionally from what we've lived through as not just a culture but a world? Is there something that needs to be healed in a relationship? Is there something that needs to be healed between us and God? The communion that we're about to take together, this is what the Bible says, that whenever we take these elements, the bread, it reminds us that Jesus' body was torn, it was broken open so that you and I could be forgiven. And his blood that was shed on the cross was shed so that you and I can be forgiven. And so the Bible then tells us when we take communion, we are to search our hearts. God, is there anything that needs to be healed in me back to your intended design? Let's pray. God and Father, Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, and we thank you for the truth and stability of your word. God, draw us into your truth once again. Holy Spirit, reach into our lives, search us, try us. God, heal, restore, repair all the things that our sin is broken. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor Paul Smith and Westridge Church for sharing the sermon with us this week. Be sure to check out Westridge online and in person, westridgechurch.us online or in Eau Claire on Kane Road. Check out our remix competition on collectivechoir.org. You can also donate to the choir there if you're feeling blessed by our ministry. Check out our Facebook page, like us, follow us, all that. There's there's a lot of good stuff there. Come join our choir. Monday nights, six o'clock, Valley Brook Church, downtown Eau Claire. Love you all,
0: God bless thanks for listening to the house of god podcast presented by the collective choir on eau claire hometown media to find out more about the collective choir or the church you heard about in this podcast please follow us on facebook or visit www.collectivechoir.org